Hey everybody, this is Telling Mental Health, where we break stigma with story. Each episode, we feature a true and personal mental health-related story, followed by a conversation with the storyteller. Here are your hosts. I'm Erica Blumfield. And I'm Scott Randall. And today's story comes from Emerson Dameron. I'm Emerson Dameron. A few years ago, I turned 40, and to celebrate as a treat to myself, I got a large infusion of ketamine. Ketamine is a dissociative drug similar to PCP with fewer police chases. It's used as an anesthetic on battlefields and for farm animals, also well known as a club drug, and more recently uh, is being used as a frontier treatment for PTSD and depression, particularly treatment-resistant depression, which is what I was diagnosed with. Uh, it's something I've dealt with all my life. I've tried a lot of different drugs, a lot of different treatment modalities. Nothing has really worked, so I figured, what the hell, let's try ketamine. And that's how I find myself in Santa Barbara with a doctor giving me a spike, tucking me under a weighted blanket and saying, have a nice trip. And I see swirls of purple and blue and feel woozy and melty. And I think this feels nice, but it's also kind of disappointing. Uh, it feels like I'm on a party drug. I don't think this is going to fix me. Before I have too much time to think about that, my spirit or my ego or whatever it is that I identify as myself rises up out of my body like the ghost of Sylvester the cat after he gets flattened by a steamroller. And it dissolves into mist and I see an airplane shaped like a pair of scissors cutting the sky in half. And that lets me know that I'm off to the next scene. As I get my bearings in the next scene, I realize that I am now a document. I'm a piece of paper with some water damage and a coffee ring on me. And I'm a little concerned at first because I know there are scissor planes flying around, but I'm safe. I'm filed inside a puffy pink plastic binder in a stack of other puffy pink plastic binders. They're rubbing together and making that noise that plastic on plastic makes. They're rubbing together because the stack is teetering. It's about to fall over. But before that happens, the scissor plane cuts through the sky. And now I'm soaring above a relief map with forests and beaches and mountains and little sea critters and coves working on projects that are part of bigger networked projects. I feel the sweep of human history. I see the story of life. And I realize how much I was missing when I was on the ground, seeing things from my own perspective of what's in it for me. And I wonder, how can I see all of this now? And the scissor plane comes back through, trailing a banner that lets me know I have an all-access pass to the spinning, onion-shaped library of universal truth. I'm in the spinning, onion-shaped library of universal truth, which is enormous and would be confusing uh, if not for its excellent filing system. 
I find the piece of microfish that has the answers I'm looking for. But before I get to look at it, I see the scissor plane coming back. I think, no, I this is not a good time, but there's nothing I can do about it. And I know if I try to steal the microfish, it'll disintegrate in my pocket. So I leave it in a study carol, hoping somebody will figure out where to refile it. Trusting the process. And now I'm seeing my own interactions, recent conversations that I've had with my friends and coworkers, and some old dramas from the past that still bother me. And I'm seeing them first as one-act plays in a crowded, dark little theater off of Santa Monica Boulevard. Then I see them as chalk talk, the sports play-by-play diagrams with the X's and O's. I see them as pure abstractions. I see them as animals making boo and hooray noises to each other. And I realize there are many different ways to tell a story. And I have a flashback to my childhood. My dad is a public defender, and sometimes he has to go into the courthouse on Saturdays to do extra work, and he brings my brother and me, and we're left to our own devices. We use the empty courtrooms to hold mock trials for our stuffed animals. And I'm seeing a stuffed deer being sentenced to life without parole, For something, I don't know, maybe it was bad, but the deer still has spots on the side. It's a fawn. This is a child. This feels like a miscarriage of justice. And I realize that I've always wanted to align my life with some system of higher laws without knowing what those laws might be or why they seem to keep changing or where they're coming from, and maybe that's why I'm anxious and depressed a lot of the time. And the scissor plane comes back through, everything disintegrates into mist. And for a few weeks, I'm walking on sunshine. I feel really good. I feel a complete shift of perspective. Within a few months, a lot of my old patterns and habits of mind reemerge. The most poisonous thing you can say to someone with depression is just snap out of it. It's like telling someone with a concussion to walk it off. But now, because I've had the experience of losing my ego and seeing everything in my life as this series of ridiculous shifting abstractions, I notice that when I get off on some bad track... Sometimes I am able to go meta and zoom out and opt out of that and see it differently and just snap out of it, which to me feels like I've acquired a magic power. All right, we're back. That was uh, the story. And here we have the storyteller with us, Emerson Dameron. In the flesh. In the flesh and the computer uh, <laughs> online, as long as that's where we are now. In the interface. <laughs> um, we have a lot to ask you about. I'm sure the audience would like to 
would like to know more. Erica, do you want to kick things off? Absolutely. Um, So Emerson, you mentioned that you experienced treatment resistant depression. Yes. Can you elaborate more on that and what that is like for you? Uh, When I was fairly young, I want to say fourth grade was the first memory I have. I was sent to counseling because it seemed like something was awry. I was not meshing well with my peers. I was struggling emotionally. I was kind of a dark, weird kid. And over the next uh, 10 to 15 years, I had psychologists and psychiatrists throw a lot of stuff at the wall to try to figure out what would help. Uh, I was on handfuls of different antidepressants when I was a teenager, including a lot of stuff that's not prescribed to teenagers anymore uh, for various reasons. And nothing really seemed to be the killer app. And that kind of continued over the course of my most of my adult life. I self-medicated with alcohol very heavily when I was in college with mixed results that was a major presence in my life for a couple of decades. Uh, I finally quit drinking a few years ago for health reasons and you know, was left to deal with all of the stuff that was still there underneath that layer of booze fog that I created, which was eerily similar to the stuff that had been there when I was 10 years old. It was you know, some existential questions about where do I fit in? How do I connect with other people? And a lot of angst around that. I think in some ways, I kind of sought out depression for, as a relief from anxiety. Uh, it, the more fundamental experience that I've had of relating with other people is anxiety. That's something that kicked in the first day of kindergarten and never really went away. And the alcohol was my attempt to mitigate that and kind of create a set of conditions where I could relate to people more easily and be less self-conscious about it. I think the failure, the failure to do that was kind of what I was depressed about. I really relate to that so much. And I, I love how you really capture, you explain that trying to find the right treatments was just like throwing, throwing it against the wall and seeing what sticks. And do you think that's one of the reasons why people, um, I feel like it contributes to why it's sometimes really challenging for people to stay on medications that have a lot of side effects. And sometimes that gets tied up with a stigma of, well, people don't stay on their meds or if only people took their meds. But Scott, I wanted to ask you if you wanted to weigh in, ask Emerson anything. Yeah, I was um, interested in the timing of it because you'd talked about trying all of these different um, cures and throwing everything against the wall. And then at 40, as a gift to yourself, you say, effort. I'm going to try this new treatment and uh, I'm going to do ketamine. It's an interesting time, I think, in people's lives because, you know, sometimes people call them like midlife crises or whatever, where we're kind of reevaluating everything. And I just hit 40 not very long ago. Congratulations. Thank you. You (laughs) (laughs) You really start to take stock when there are so many years behind you 
and and uh, in kind of thinking, okay, like where am I and what am I doing with my life? And I I do wonder kind of how important was you know turning forty into trying this new new cure, um, and how much did that st- being at that stage of life play into your decision? I think it had more to do with quitting drinking, which coincidentally happened when I was in my mid thirties, that kind of set me up for having a bit of a midlife crisis uh, because I felt like I was a beginner in a lot of ways. Like there was a lot of stuff that I kind of took a 20 year break from uh, that I had to learn from scratch. I'm sure a lot of it had to do with that, you know, there's that one weekend that goes by where all of a sudden it feels like you have more time behind you than you do in front of you. And you're trying to make sense of the experiences that you've had. Uh, But I think for me, it was coincidental that it happened at that point. I think I would have had the same kind of uh, dark night of the soul whenever I stopped using alcohol. I think that's such an amazing uh, imagery, the dark night of the, of, of the soul. I, I was writing the other day and I was trying to describe what like the depression and the sense of feeling just so burdened and out mm. of control, you know, like demons spewing fire, spitting fire through my brain and, and, So I really relate to that and also to the self-medicating and then emerging and having to like experience life without, um, you know, the solve of, of, of whatever is being, um, you know, used. And I think that so many people self-medicate and I love how you put it, that it was almost like you were a beginner and right. yeah, and how anxiety leads to, I feel like you mentioned that maybe you were more anxious or more depressed, but like, I find that like the anxiety in myself can get so intense that it just, it triggers the depression. And it's like all just this like wild mishmash of emotions that are so hard to balance. So that that i i was i was interested in that like first moment when you felt the ketamine mm. and you mentioned that it was like a party drug and you were disappointed was that how in a way like been there done that oh this isn't going to work it's going to be another disappointment yeah there were shades of that i i've always been uh recreational drug enthusiast. Like, I don't know if you had the D.A.R.E. program uh, at your elementary schools, uh, drug abuse resistance education. That was where a grizzled, hungover police officer comes in and explains to a bunch of 10-year-olds the dangers of illicit drugs and go, you know, goes through the list of all of the different drugs that are out there. And my takeaway was I want to try all of them. (laughs) And I think after around the same time, I got pretty into music, particularly the Beatles and Pink Floyd. And uh, they made no secret that psychedelic drugs were a big part of their creative arsenal. 
I think it's, I ended up getting into alcohol specifically, I think probably owing somewhat to my family environment, some of my genetic legacy, definitely where I went to college. I went to a large SEC football school that was all about binge drinking, less so about using drugs as tools of self-inquiry. Like there just wasn't a lot of that. It was all about partying. So the main thing was the alcohol and you could smoke some weed and do some Coke and do some other stuff to keep the party going. But it wasn't about introspection the way that I think psychedelics can be in this certain tradition that goes back to the 1960s and has been carried on by uh, underground guides and as part of a subculture that kind of goes in and out of style and definitely came back in style uh, in, in the middle of the uh, the 20 teens, I think around the time that Donald Trump showed up and the national scene started to get very hyper real is the word that I've heard to describe it. There was an interest in, uh, you know, what lessons that could be learned from practices like meditation and, and using psychedelics as tools of self-inquiry. And that's around the time that I started hearing some really interesting stuff about, uh, and ketamine was the first. Uh, there, oh, there's also been similar stuff with psilocybin and MDMA and some other substances where they were using these as part of a treatment protocol for uh, veterans with PTSD and getting off the charts results. Like in the hardest cases, they were seeing progress that was not considered possible before. And, you know, I'm friendly with some people that are, you know, kind of on that scene. And some of them started reaching out to me and to talk about this because, you know, I was at a point where I tried a lot of things. It didn't really seem like anything had worked. I was kind of, I come full circle to dealing with a lot of the problems that I had in childhood and adolescence. And, you know, it, I was very optimistic about it. It brought together two things that I'm interested in, which are uh, fringe mental health modalities and recreational drugs and seemed to, you know, the, those two things seem to be coming together and harmonizing better than I would have thought. And yeah, my first experience when I was when I started using the ketamine was that it was similar to experiences that I'd had with party drugs. Like mm -hmm. for a long time, I was I was combining alcohol with benzos, which would you know put me into this very kind of slip and slide liminal state where I it felt kind of like you know the booze was living through me. And the first thing, you know, ketamine is a dissociative. So the first thing that you get is this kind of out of body feeling. It's very, I've heard it described as melty. And when I started getting that, my first reaction was, uh, all right, I'm just going to check out for a while as one does on this kind of drug. It's not quite what I was hoping for. You know, I'd worked, I'd done a lot of research. I'd done a lot of meditation practice and self-inquiry work building up to this because I built it up pretty heavily in my mind as this thing that was going to be a before and after experience. 
And my first thought when it started kicking in was I've been here. It's nice, but this isn't quite what I was hoping for. But I think, I think that moment of resignation was useful because I think it put me in a more receptive place where I released some of my expectations. So I think I'm I'm glad that happened in retrospect. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about having the opportunity for introspection on drugs like that. And you had the, you know, realization of, you know, all of a sudden, like, this isn't good. This is something I've experienced before. And now all of a sudden, wow, I'm actually having a really good trip. Yes. And I was wondering while all of that is going on and we'll maybe like dive in to some of the specifics um, that you were kind of describing uh, throughout the story, but overall were were you like thinking to yourself, this is a really crazy trip. Because I mean, it reminds me of like, sometimes if I'm meditating and I'm thinking, wow, I'm having a really good meditation right now. And then I think, dang it, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to just be experiencing and I'm not supposed to be like judging whether or not this is a good experience. And how much of that was going through your mind while all of these wild adventures were going on? Yeah, that definitely complicates it because you're kind of judging yourself on your inability to relinquish judgment, which is frustrating, but is uh, one of the hazards of the territory. It was very much like a dream in that on some level, I knew this is way out there, but on another, I was just trying to make sense of what was going on in front of me. Uh, I, I wanted to figure out what to do in this world, how to navigate. Uh, I wasn't making meaning out of it, but I was trying to make sense out of it and kind of figure out how one thing went to the next so that I could do my part to in this story, if that makes any sense at all. Well, like, what do you, what did you feel your part was just to experience it and remember it and, and later make some meaning out of it? Yeah, there were little signs and signals that gave me ideas of what my next move could be. Um, it didn't it definitely didn't feel like an open navigation kind of scenario i felt like i was on i had a mission i wasn't totally sure what it was but there was something in there that i needed to find and something i needed to get out of it and i was very receptive to you know, what the signals were as to what that might be so i i also found your language and the images so vivid you mentioned that you see you see the sweep of human history and you see the story of life. And I just thought, what do you think the essence, like we're talking, like upon reflection now, like what's this main essence of the story of life? In one sense, you kind of had to be there. I had one of the things about these <laughs> experiences is that there's always going to be an ineffable quality. And, you know, as as someone that likes to think of himself as creative and being a storyteller, I always think that I'm the guy that's going to nail this, you know, Aldous Huxley and Jim Morrison were all, they were all posers. I'm the one that's going to do this justice. And it rarely works out that well, but 
I think it was it was just an extremely zoomed out view. Like there's a self inquiry exercise where if you're really engrossed in a particular problem uh, and it's frustrating to you and you can't really see out of it, look at a picture of of the Earth from you know, however many million miles out in space. And that will help you reset your perspective and see, you know, just how arbitrary everything is when you zoom out to the, a, a certain distance. And I think there was some of that to it, but I think one of the themes that came out of it was, um, you know, we like to think that we have free will and that we're making decisions and that our actions are, you know, the, the events of human doings are the result of deliberate actions that we've taken. Whereas I think another way to look at it that could be more informative in some cases is there is this, for lack of a better word, energy that's living through us. And we convince ourselves that we have free will and that we're making decisions because that's useful in a day-to-day context. Uh, you know, you have to think that you have to believe that you have agency in order to get anything done. But in another way, human history and all of our relationships and struggles and triumphs are something that's just happening. And it's something that's just kind of happening through us, you know, in the same way that plants bend toward the sun. Uh, a lot of these processes we don't really understand as thoroughly as we'd like to think that we do. And I think this, this whole thing of the sweep of human history was kind of just getting a taste of that. That it's kind of like an action that's sweeping through you and you're being swept along with it as opposed to you having that much control over it. Yeah, totally. And I think the dissociative experience really puts that into stark relief. That takes the pressure off, man. You you take free will out of it and you just say like, hey, I'm just a part of it. And that actually is kind of a beautiful thought. Um, I was listening to something recently and they were talking about uh, free will and because it's hard to to not believe that you have, you know, decision-making ability. And they were like, if you're in the exact same situation with all the exact same factors, whatever decision you make the first time is the same decision you're going to make a thousand times. It doesn't change because you're in the situation with these factors. You're, you're, since your decision won't change, it means that maybe you didn't have a decision to begin with. Yeah, you have to believe that you have agency, I think, in order to get anything done. But ultimately, you only have the options that you know that you have, which is a constricted list. And you know, the, the more you break it down, I think the less real the sense of free will becomes. And I would say that's one of the great things to be gained from experimenting with dissociatives. Like I'd always kind of grown up thinking there's a right way to do things. And if I do things the right way, good things will happen. And if I do things the wrong way or I deviate from the path, I'll be punished. And I 
think that's pretty reductive in a way that becomes obvious when you have that kind of extreme dissociative experience. It also helps build empathy for other people. If you think oh, yes. we're all just making the decisions that are to be made in the position we're in. Yeah. Everybody's on their own trip and you don't know what they're on. Uh, you don't know how that's jibing with their experience and their physiology and everything else and all the dominoes that fell down to get them to that point. So yeah, if you if you think entirely in terms of free will and agency, you think that people are doing things on purpose, which means that you know a lot of people are stupid or mean or or worse in a lot of situations. Uh, but if you see things more as like events happening through us, it does create a lot more empathy in my experience. Or in, in the case of your story, seeing the dramas from the past and they were being represented through chalk drawings and animals and uh, courtroom scenes and plays. And I do wonder if the, you were talking about jumping out and, and out of experiences and, you know, seeing it from a meta standpoint of watching it play out as opposed to being in it and having decision-making in the, in the process. I don't know. I don't know if there's a question in there, but that just reminds me of what you were just saying. I think that's the big theme of, of the story is just the power of interpretation. I think that zooming out and going meta has been a big component of my survival that the ability to do that has gotten me out of the worst scrapes that I've been in. Uh, and I think this was like the most on the nose example of, of doing that. But it reminded me of how powerful that is to have this experience where I was in a position to have all of these Rashomon interpretations of events going on simultaneously. It was powerful to see you know, how that the kind of relief that that throws our struggles into. I think that you painted that so beautifully. And as I listened to the story, I was like flying with you, you know, it put me in that emotional space and just some of the things just I'll say, like when you say, um, your spirit or your ego or your sense of self rises out of your body and dissolves into mist. And then you're like, you were saying you have these moments that lead to greater empathy then. And now, um, like when you mentioned, like feeling that you were always on the ground looking from your own perspective and what is in what's in it for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's hard not to do because life, can be such a battle, you know, everything we go through. And so I just wanted to say, I love this shift, like you were saying of perspective and how it led to empathy. Cause what do you think? What empathy, I think changes our lives Mm -hmm. so profoundly and other people's lives, but it's, it's hard to feel sometimes. And yeah. So just beautiful. I also think that just to that point, um, before we, get off of that. Uh, I think it's a shame that zooming out and going meta is kind of a luxury in our society. You know, meditation retreats are prohibitively expensive. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but I love that you brought this up because I've, you know, 
I've never been in the economic bracket where I could afford like, you know, alternative treatments or I, I, I really like that you're bringing that up because more and more and more of these need to be available because it can create this, create the zooming out for us. So I don't know. I don't know if that's where you're going at. And I kind of interrupted you. So please go on. You're much wiser on that than I am. <laughs> oh, shucks. I think it's evangelizing for this kind of thing. My ultimate pipe dream is that it does become more accessible as time goes on. Uh, I don't, I, I wish that people didn't have to pay thousands of dollars to have these kinds of experiences in a safe way. I mean, theoretically, you can do have your own meditation practice, or if you're going to do this kind of self-inquiry, you can theoretically do that with street drugs. I think that's extremely hazardous, but uh, I really would like for it to be something that's available to anyone that needs it because it's so easy to get stuck in survival mode when you're, there is a lot of scarcity and precarity in your life. It's I'm not as uh, philosophically grounded when I'm concerned about making rent or paying for groceries. And I think there's some, you know, people have been put into that struggle mindset, I think, by the conditions of late capitalism and for other reasons. Uh, I would like to create a lot more resources for people to do this kind of self-inquiry without breaking the bank. I don't think it should just be for rich people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mental health care is in shambles. Yeah basically. And even let's in quotes, accessible care is tragic. It's I've been through it. It's not, it's been, it's not been very therapeutic. And I once heard somewhere, I, I don't know if I should say this because I can't say where exactly I heard it from, but that's, I'm a proponent for medication because for me, like I, my bipolar is so extreme that without medication, I'm either, you know, dark night of the soul to quote you. Right. Yeah. Or, or I'm like so manic that I like, I can't function in society. If so, it works, I support it. I, I'm in favor of anything that works. Oh, I know you do. I know you do. Because I always like to qualify that because I I think that, you know, there's a stigma sometimes around medication too, or uh-huh. so big pharma and all of that. Exactly. And I just try, you know, for anyone who's out there who takes meds and struggles, like I get that. And it's just, anyway, if you stay on your meds, if people are telling you to stay on your meds, but if this, these treatments can be done, I was basically getting to these treatments can be done in conjunction. So, right. Like you can oh, yeah. use meds and still have the benefit of something like ketamine. Yeah. I use an antidepressant and I also do occasional ketamine booster sessions and yeah, they, they work well together. I think finding the right balance is hard. Uh, and the side effects of some antidepressants are, are really not worth the, the good that they've done in my experience. You know, it took me many, many years to find one that was suitable for me. But uh, 
yeah, I know people that have had success going the pharmaceutical route. And I know people that have had shattering religious experiences on drugs or through meditation, and that's changed their lives. And I support it, all of that and more by it, anything that works. I think it, it's such a strange time to be alive. Uh, it feels like all bets are off that I'm, I'm really in, in favor of an everything on the table approach. And there is so much on the table these days, which I think is a good thing. Overall, I'll say sometimes it can be a little overwhelming how much is on the table, but I've noticed that novelty is strangely effective. Trying something new, like just, it seems exciting and new. So if I read an article that says that running every day for 20 minutes cures depression, like I I know that that's not necessarily true, but if I do it the first week, I'm going to be pretty excited about it. Yeah, it doesn't hurt. And it will pull me out for that first. It might not last forever, but just the enthusiasm of, well, maybe this, and this might be what you were doing earlier in life. You were talking about actually throwing everything against the wall and just trying everything. But there's some excitement, I guess, in trying different things and then seeing the results of them that I think just that act, even if it's sort of the placebo effect, just that act Mm -hmm. kind of makes you feel better sometimes. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in placebos. I think they've done a lot of good in the world. I think some of the medications I was on as a teenager probably screwed up my dopamine system a little bit. I mean, there's no way to know, but uh, yeah, I was 16 year olds are not supposed to be on lithium. And there was some other stuff that was pretty heavy duty that. I think may have had something to do with some of the uh, emotional issues that I had after that. Uh, so there's a, there's a risk involved and, you know, sometimes it, there's the possibility of, of getting hurt, trying something new, which is one of the things that makes it exciting. So I wouldn't necessarily try to mitigate all of the risk out of it. Uh, I think that's one of the things that, is happening now. I think the honeymoon is over with psychedelic therapies a little bit as we try to figure out, you know, how they're going to integrate into society. A lot of the stuff that's happening around that with the patent wars and stuff like that is pretty disappointing for some of the old school psychedelic purists who thought that all of this stuff was going to change the world. I think Hunter Thompson said anyone who thought he could get enlightenment for $5 a hit got exactly what he deserved. So we're starting to see some of the limitations of, of psychedelics for mental health. But yeah, it's, I think it's exciting to be putting new stuff in, in circulation. Because there is, yeah, just trying something new and taking a risk, taking a different way home is in itself a, a valuable mental health practice. Well, Hunter S. Thompson, I feel like that may be exactly the ending point. Well, I have nice. one, one more question just about okay. talking about, uh, you know, trying everything you can and the effects of it. I was curious about how the experience of sharing this story affected your depression and how the practice of storytelling in general or doing deep introspection and then pulling out gold and sharing it with other people, how that, how does that affect your own mental well-being and, and others and just the other creative types and, you know, what we can 
how we can use that craft? It's a fun story to tell. It's different from a lot of the other ones that, that I tell where the challenge that I give myself most regularly is to take really painful experiences that I've had and play them for laughs. To me, that feels like alchemy. I feel like if I can take something that was a miserable experience for me and get other people to laugh at it, that's the greatest sense of accomplishment that I get as a writer. This one's a little different because it's not, it doesn't quite fit into that model. It was an experiment when I started. I just wanted to see like what will happen if I try to do a trip report on this first experience with ketamine and render that as a story with a beginning, middle, and an end. You know, what would that look like? Because the experience itself is uh, doesn't naturally lend itself to that narrative structure. So I wanted to see what would come out of that. I've gotten a really good response to it. Uh, like a lot of it's of the stories that I've told, it's the one where I get the most people asking me questions after it and asking, you know, where, where I can get this stuff or asking me more about what the experience was like. And, uh, I, I think there's a there's a madcap quality to it that's different from some of the other stuff that I do. I think there's a joy that's gets uh, gets uh, gets with some people that hear it, and uh, yeah, it's it's an oddball story in my collection, but it's a lot of fun to tell, and I've really enjoyed the response that I've gotten to it because I think a lot of people struggle with this stuff and are curious about these unusual uh, paths. And it started some really good conversations. So I'm glad I took the risk of, of trying to tell it. And it being so fun to tell, do you see a relationship uh -huh. between storytelling and therapy and the, those two working together or storytelling as a form of therapy? I mean, I think of like talking to somebody in a therapy session, as opposed to talking to a crowd or sharing a story and somehow related. They, they have a lot in common. Uh, the comedian, Robert Yasamura said, if you, if you ever th say like comedy is my therapy, you should really get real therapy instead because it's a lot better, <laughs> but uh, you know, they can work in concert with each other. I think this would be, this is a good example of, something I did on my own that I was able to develop into something that where I could share some of the weirdness and fun of that experience with other people in a way that resonated with them. So I think it was a success as far as that goes. I think so too. I think that it's so, I think, um, that it's a fine line. Like I, I would describe it more as like a catharsis maybe. Mm the writing process when, for me, and I think I, I want to echo Emerson, you, you always move the audience. You always give us something to really ponder and think about. I love your B story. Your oh, thanks. <laughs> how there's a, how I find found meaning in life by saving bees from drowning in the swimming pool at my old building DTLA. 
Oh, I love that. It's so vivid. Like you'll have to come back on and tell us that story. It's a date. Oh, yay. Oh, perfect. Well, I've enjoyed it. Is this where we end? <laughs> this is, I just. It feels all right to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it feels good. Thank you everyone for listening. Emerson Dameron, where can we find you? Um, I'm not doing much on Twitter right now, but there's, you can go there and I'll probably announce what I'm doing when I start doing things. And that's just at Emerson Dameron. I'll announce what I'm doing when I'm doing things. I like that attitude. Yeah. Any need to know information will probably come through there. (laughs) Amazing. Well, this was really special. It was our first ever episode. So thank you for just being you and fantastic. And um, I know that so many people are going to benefit from all the information you shared and your creativity. And that's just sort of thinking like, how's this show going to work? Are we going to be able to enjoy like a conversation and, working from a story and uh this was very this is a great first episode thank you for for coming on with us thanks for having me i hope everyone else can live up to the high standard that we've set with this <laughs> or episode. we'll just keep bringing you back or i yeah I, otherwise i can i can just be the the guy love it all right you're gonna stop recording all right uh, yeah to but the, we uh, to, just say goodbye to emerson we'll say yeah goodbye th- this was really fun thank you Thank you so much for listening. Next episode, we are excited to have Ashton Cynthia Clark with us. Till then, let's keep talking about mental health and take a step forward as a society.